Hi guys, my name is Tammy and you're welcome to my dad's podcast. At the time of this recording, I am seven years old. I was born in the United Kingdom. I have a little sister. I love her very much. Her name is Toke. Toke is currently four years old and she was born in Georgia. In this episode of Nigerian American, my dad is going to tell you a story about healthcare and medical tourism. I hope you guys enjoy it. Got your back and I'm always gonna hold you down, 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 down Even though sometimes it seems I'm never around, yeah I won't hold on to but I promise I'll be back to you It's you that I long to see and with you's where I wanna be All right, welcome to Nigerian American. Um, I thought I'd let my daughter, Tammy, do the intro for this episode. Uh, sometimes I feel guilty about spending time away from she and her sister, especially when I have to record the podcast and I need them both to be nice and quiet. So this time I thought, hey, let's all hang out in my study and let's record this one together. So you guys promise to be really quiet, okay? Yep. How about you, Toke? Are you going to be quiet? say yes. They can't see you. <laughs> Come on, Toke. Yes. All right. Say hi, everyone. Thanks for listening. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening. Okay. Awesome. All right. So now we're going to be quiet, okay? In this episode, I want to talk about medical tourism. For those who may not know or understand what medical tourism is, medical tourism refers to people traveling to another country other than their own to obtain medical treatment. It usually refers to people who travel from less developed countries to major medical centers in more developed countries for treatment that is unavailable at home. The motivation for medical tourism varies. It can be due to the unavailability of professional facilities or equipment, uh, professional expertise, or even sometimes due to the cost of receiving the medical care. Medical tourism is more often than not for surgery-related treatments, though people also travel for dental or cosmetic reasons or to see, you know, maybe a fertility specialist, for instance. Sometimes people with rare conditions also travel to countries where treatment may be better understood. The common factor, though, for most medical tourists is either that they have little or no confidence in their local healthcare systems and choose to go somewhere else. Um, And, you know, those places they go to are oftentimes more expensive um, in, you know, a different country. Or in the case of countries where the healthcare standards are actually competitive, um, it could be that people want less expensive healthcare. Or don't want to endure, you know, the long wait times for medical service. For instance, countries that operate public healthcare systems tend to have long wait times for certain procedures. So, if you happen to be from such a country, you may consider medical tourism in order to avoid the long waits that, on certain occasions, have resulted in deaths. Some countries have also identified medical tourism as a revenue generator 
and made deliberate efforts to provide, you know, and improve convenience and speed for such medical tourists. Some popular medical uh, travel destinations include countries like Canada, Costa Rica, Ecuador, India, Israel, Jordan, Malaysia, Mexico, Singapore, South Korea, Taiwan, Thailand, Turkey, and the United States. In developed countries, the need for medical tourism is mostly cost and or speed related. Most people are confident in their healthcare systems. They just don't want to pay so much or have to wait for so long to receive treatment. In underdeveloped countries, however, the need for medical tourism can be more dire. Typically, anyone who can afford it prefers to be treated abroad because of the inadequacies of locally available medical standards and medical infrastructure. Grown up in Nigeria, medical tourism wasn't that popular because most of the medical facilities and teaching hospitals were world class. Um, but over the last two decades, and as corruption became the order of the day, uh, medical standards and infrastructure began to decline. It became more and more common in recent years to hear about people traveling abroad for medical treatment. Initially, people only traveled for serious conditions like you know, major organ surgeries um, and stuff like that. But over time, things like cosmetic surgery or even childbirth tourism became very popular as well. Now, let's talk about childbirth and birth tourism. Birth tourism is basically the travel of pregnant women to another country for the purpose of giving birth in that country. Birth tourism became popular in the late 80s and the early 90s in Nigeria. It was seen mostly as an opportunity to obtain citizenship for the child in a country with birthright citizenship. This was common not only for Nigerians, but for people in the underdeveloped countries across the globe. Um, and these are people who are seeking better opportunities for their children, including access to like, you know, public schooling, health care, or even relocation sponsorship for the parents in the future. And many families have migrated to developed countries this way. To discourage birth tourism, Australia, France, Germany, Ireland, New Zealand, South Africa, and the UK modified their citizenship laws, granting citizenship by birth only if at least one parent is a citizen of the country or a legal permanent resident who has lived in the country for several years. Currently, no European country grants unconditional birthright citizenship. However, the United States, Canada, Mexico, Argentina, Tanzania, Pakistan, Fiji, Lesotho, and Brazil still do. Initially, birth tourism was the biggest motivation for having a baby in another country for most Nigerians. But as medical infrastructure started to decline, more and more people started choosing to have their babies in another country, not only for citizenship or immigration reasons, but more for personal health and well-being. The infant and maternal mortality rates, even though they have improved over time, are still some of the worst in the world. In 2010, and according to a State of the World's Mother's Report, one out of 29 women in Nigeria was at risk of maternal death, and the infant mortality rate was above 12%. That's a lot of unnecessary deaths. Though the cause of death varies, the lack of proper medical infrastructure is responsible for a significant portion of it. 
In many circles, it's actually considered irresponsible if you have the means to go abroad to have your baby, but choose not to. This brings me to today's story. Early 2009, my wife Dolly and I were pregnant with our first child, Timmy. We happened to be in Nigeria at the time and were contemplating birth tourism, as many couples in our financial class would. It wasn't about citizenship birthrights for us. I was already a permanent resident of the United States and would be able to apply for her to live in the U.S. It was more about medical care and the well-being of my wife and our baby. Left to my wife, she was ready to have the baby in Nigeria. I had my reservations. I hate to make it sound like a scary experience having a baby in Nigeria because, in truth, lots of babies are born in perfect health in Nigeria. However, I'd also heard many horror stories of preventable infant and maternal deaths, and I didn't want us to be any part of those statistics. Three months into our pregnancy, I began exploring birthplace options and evaluating costs. My wife had just returned from the UK, so the UK was an option. Um, I lived in the US, so that was also an option. So our decision ultimately would have been based on convenience. You know, uh, where do we have more family support? Which one is less expensive? Um, which would also allow me to easily travel back and forth as my profession at the time required. I was touring. Um, I was about to start recording a new album. So I had to consider all of that as well. As far as my wife was concerned, we have a strong support system in Nigeria and having the baby abroad wasn't really a necessity. She didn't understand why I was making a big deal of it. It was still early in the pregnancy, so I imagined I'd get her to come around eventually. As far as I was concerned, it wasn't worth the risk, considering some of the stories I'd heard about local medical facilities in Nigeria, even at some of the higher-end private hospitals. Coincidentally, my sister Lara was also pregnant at the time, but she was further along and getting ready to have her baby. My sister, like my wife, had also decided to have her baby in Lagos. Lara and her husband chose to have the baby at a government-run general hospital because, as she said at the time, they would have access to some of the best specialists and medical care, and because one of her husband's relatives was a senior official at the facility at the time. It was a normal pregnancy. She had regular scans and visits to her doctor. She attended all prenatal activities, and everything looked great. A few days before her due date, however, she noticed she was spotting and it rapidly escalated to bleeding. The bleeding continued for a while and then at about 3 a.m., her husband rushed her to the emergency section of the hospital where she was scheduled to have the baby. Unfortunately, Lara's husband's relative who worked at the facility happened to be off duty and out of town at the time so that that leverage wasn't available during the emergency. When they arrived, there was no doctor on duty so she was admitted into the emergency section and told to wait. While they waited for a doctor to arrive, the nurses would come in periodically to scoop up the blood using a kidney dish. She remembers it being approximately five-minute intervals. This is how much blood she was losing. They kept telling her the doctor was soon arrive, but no doctor showed up. At this point, her husband began to panic, and he started making calls to close family members. He still didn't want to express the severity of the situation, he just asked that anyone that could come down should. Lara lay bleeding in the hospital bed until about 10 a.m. when an old schoolmate of hers, who just so happened to be a resident medical student, showed up 
to check on another patient. As soon as a friend walked in and spotted her, she went up to her, noticed her condition, and you know was confused about it and started asking, "What are you doing here? What's going on? You know, have you been attended to, etc." At this point, Lara had lost so much blood that she was becoming faint and nearly losing consciousness. Her friend immediately sprung into action, checking her vitals and immediately calling the nurses and requesting an oxygen tank be urgently brought into the ward for her. The nurses, after running around for a while, came back saying there was no available oxygen tank at the facility. Then her friend decided to run around the hospital herself. This is a large facility by the way, so you can imagine how long these runs took. Eventually, she was able to find one that was being administered to someone that she evaluated not to be in as a critical condition as Lara, so she yanked it off of that patient and rushed back to hook it up to Lara. By the time she returned, Lara was already only semi-conscious, but her friend was relentless and managed to get her somewhat stabilized. Then her friend left to get help, but gave the nurses instructions on what to do if things got considerably worse before she returned. While all of this was happening, Lara had begun to dilate, and at some point, the baby began to make its way, but she was too weak to push by herself. So the nurses had to literally help squeeze at her belly while she used her last bit of strength to finally deliver the baby. Unfortunately, her baby came out almost lifeless. She must have been affected by the loss of blood and consequently the loss of oxygen. They immediately ran an Apgar test on the baby. The Apgar test is a measure of the physical condition of a newborn infant. It is obtained by adding points for heart rate, respiratory effort, muscle tone, response to stimulation, and skin coloration. A score of 10 represents the best possible condition. Lara's baby's Apgar score was 1. She was barely alive. The only point she scored was for her barely beating heart. She was limp, rapidly turning blue, barely breathing, and not responding to stimulation of any kind. The nurses started scrambling and trying everything they could to revive the baby. Everyone was in panic mode. She ran out to see if they could find a specialist of any kind in the facility. Eventually, they came across a Dr. Vaughn, who was told about the situation and how critical the condition of mother and the baby were. But Dr. Vaughn had other plans. He told him he was too tired and didn't have the bandwidth to deal with another patient. He left the facility without checking on Lara and her baby. I know it sounds crazy that a doctor would blow off a patient in such condition, but if you've ever been to one of those hospital facilities, you may understand or even make an excuse for his frustration and his reaction. The way these facilities are run, they're usually understaffed. Not enough doctors and care specialists to handle all the cases coming through the door, so in some instances, patients may be left to die as my sister and her baby were. It's just a sad reality in some parts of the world. A possibility is that he may have been the only available specialist on ground and had worked for up to 12 hours or more, you know, delivering babies or whatever else he did. and he may have honestly been beyond exhausted. Another possibility is that he didn't really care much and, you know, there's really no risk of him losing his job nor his professional license for blowing off, you know, a mother and child in such a condition. So, you know, it just was whatever. 
Either way, I'm sure you'll agree that in the developed world, this could rarely ever happen. Hospitals may be somewhat understaffed, but not to the point where an emergency is ignored and patients are left to their own fate. I'm sure you're also wondering why there's only one available specialist at a government-run teaching hospital. Till this day, I haven't been able to explain it beyond the fact that doctors maybe show up when they feel like, or maybe they just don't have enough of them on staff. Lara's baby was moved by the nurses to a different ward while they tried everything they knew to revive her. She eventually responded and was becoming stable when Lara's medical student friend returned. She still didn't have any help. Hours had passed and Lara's friend eventually had to stitch her up. She had been left unattended because the nurses considered the baby to be of high priority. This was about the time my wife Dolly and I arrived at the hospital to hear what had transpired between 1 a.m. when she started bleeding and 1 p.m. when her baby was delivered. The story you just heard happened at Nigeria's largest baby-making factory. It is called Lagos Island Maternity Hospital. You should look it up on Google. To the best of my knowledge, this is the one single location that handles the highest number of childbirths per month in the entire country. And my sister and her baby almost lost their lives there. Not necessarily to complications that were unheard of, but to the lack of medical standards and basic infrastructure. I won't get into the details of why a facility of such importance would be left in such a state by a government that claims to care about the welfare of its citizens. It's definitely not for the lack of resources. Nigeria is not a poor country. But like many other things that is wrong with Nigeria, we'll just charge it to corruption. Subsequent governments have made attempts to fix that hospital and improve the standards so I can't say for sure what the state of that hospital currently is, but it wouldn't be on the list of places I'd recommend to anyone that I care about. The experience Lara had was traumatic for all of us. My wife and I got on the same page immediately about traveling abroad to have our baby. We couldn't just leave it to chance and simply hope for the best. We began making arrangements right away and eventually decided to have our baby in the UK. Lara and her baby miraculously made it through that ordeal. Lara's baby is a healthy, beautiful, and super intelligent eight-year-old today. And just like her uncle LD... She's currently top of every class she's been in so far. Her name is Mina. We'll be back after a quick break. We'll be right back. My wife, Dolly, and I decided to go the birth tourism route. 
Lara's experience cleared all doubts that my wife previously had, and she took off for the UK as soon as we could figure everything out. Dolly had continued her prenatals with a new doctor in the UK, and she had gone for regular checkups. Uh, we were all set and ready, just waiting on our due date. Um, so a few days before the due date, Dolly came up with the idea that she wanted to do a pregnancy photo shoot and that we should go to a studio in London to have it done. But I dragged my feet a little. I wasn't much of a fan of those. Anyway, happy wife, happy life. So I gave in and agreed that, you know, we would go to London for the photo shoot. So we got dressed and we took a cab to the train station. As soon as we got out of the cab, she said, oh, my God, I think my water just broke. This was our first baby and neither of us had a clue. So I immediately just grabbed another cab and headed straight to the hospital where she was scheduled to have the baby. When we got there, she was examined and we were told to start monitoring when her contractions start and then we should return when they became 10 minutes apart. They had our address on file and could tell we lived close to the hospital. We were less than 10 minutes away. Dolly and I went back home as we were instructed and told everyone the good news. We started watching for when her contractions would begin, but for some weird reason, after about six hours, nothing we expected seemed to be happening. After a while, she started complaining about having a headache and that she felt a little tired, and then it developed into a fever. She developed a temperature and complained about feeling very cold. I started getting worried, but being first-time parent and not really knowing what to expect, I wasn't sure if any of this was unusual. Nevertheless, I decided to take her back to the hospital. When we got to the hospital and briefed the doctor on duty, he seemed to move with urgency, having her wheeled into a ward while instructing that you know her vitals be examined. They started connecting all kinds of machines to her, doing scans, monitoring screens and all. Um, they also administered multiple drips. The doctor was explaining his findings every step of the way, and much of it sounded complicated. And I also noticed everyone that was attending to my wife was picking up the pace with each finding. So I figured something was wrong. Next, I saw what must have been six to eight senior specialists all walk into the room, looking a bit puzzled, analyzing, and discussing some printouts. I tried to listen in, but I couldn't make out much of what they were saying. Then I heard conversations about her not being dilated enough, and then the main doctor turned around and said to me, Sir, your baby's in serious distress, and we must bring her out right away. Not in those words, but something like that. The other physician said something like, Prepare room one and wheel her in immediately for a C-section. As he completed his statement, two nurses passed on some documents for me to sign. I signed it without hesitation. I started getting very anxious. Things were clearly not going according to plan. They hurriedly got me to put on some scrubs and a surgical face mask, and I held onto her hand as they wheeled her into the operating theater. I was scared to death, but I had to put on a calm face for Dolly. She was aware of what was about to happen, but I noticed all medical staff putting on a smile to explain to her, so I just followed suit and did what they were doing. I even tried to crack a joke or two as they administered the anesthesia and prepped for the surgery. I was shivering in fear on the inside, but pretending like everything was okay to Dolly. She needed my positive energy to remain calm. 
As the surgery began, I sat beside her, holding her hands, and I talked to her all through. I could see everything. She was blinded by the blue sheets that hung up in front of her. I wonder what her reaction would have been if she could see what I was seeing. Anyway, a few moments passed and they brought her out. She made a few little noises. Then they lifted her high up enough for Dolly to see and asked, boy or girl? We both looked at her and then we looked at each other and smiled. It was a girl. We weren't sure. The earliest scans we did in Nigeria had conflicting results, and her doctor in the UK insisted nicely that we shouldn't ruin the surprise, so she refused to tell us. Anyway, I wanted a girl, so I was super excited. I think Dolly was too. Shortly after, I noticed the physician examining my baby closely, and then she appeared to go limp. Then I noticed a bit of panic as the physicians tried to stimulate her. She didn't seem to be responding. I had a flashback to my sister Lara and her birth. You have no idea how afraid I was at this point, but I had to keep a straight face for Dolly. She was crying at this moment. It was tears of joy. She had no idea what was going on because she still couldn't see. At this time, one of the physicians was stitching her up. Next, they placed our baby on top of a tray table and while pushing at her chest, They placed something on her face. It looked like a breathing apparatus. I could tell they were struggling to revive her. They immediately started wheeling the table out of the room. So I stood up without allowing Dolly notice that there was panic. And then I just told her, hey, babe, I'll be right back. I followed them. A few moments later, she seemed to take a big gasp, but she wasn't making any noises or moving. They had managed to revive her, but I could tell all wasn't well just yet. I followed as they wheeled hurriedly through the hospital hallways. Then they asked me to please stop and wait right here as they wheeled her into a room. I looked up and noticed the sign. It said intensive care unit. That's when I broke down. I felt the first tear run down my cheek and though I wasn't crying out or making any noises, I couldn't control the tears. I figured the worst was about to happen. One of the nurses asked me to please step away from the entrance into the side and that I could see her through the glass. They had a glass wall that allowed you to see what was going on in the room. They put my baby in an incubator and began connecting all sorts to her body. There were drips and connectors to and from different parts of her body, her nose, mouth, arms, legs, her chest. It was painful to watch. Eventually, they disinfected me and let me into the room and told me she had irregular heartbeats and irregular breathing and that she may have been seriously infected by her mother infected what infection then the physician proceeded to explain to me that dolly had an infection and that when her water broke our baby's protective fluids drained out and our baby was also infected by what they call group b strep or gbs GBS is a type of bacterial infection that can be found in a pregnant woman's vagina or rectum. The bacteria is normally found in about 25% of all healthy adult women. And apparently, a mother can pass GBS to her baby during delivery. She also mentioned that although GBS transmission from mother to child is considered rare in pregnant women, the outcome could be severe. In our case, it had led to our baby having breathing problems and heart and blood pressure instability. 
She's going to need to fight. She's going to need you. I recommend you stay here with her and try to talk to her. A familiar voice will help her fight. She's very weak at the moment, but I'm hopeful that everything will be okay. The nurses are here to assist you. I walk slowly towards the incubator. They made me disinfect my hands over and over, and then she told me to put my hand inside. I did. Her eyes were closed. The rhythm of breathing was weird, and the machines would beep from time to time. I reached for her hand with my index finger, and as soon as I wrapped her fingers around mine, I felt her grip get tighter, almost as if she needed my energy to pull through. I made very deliberate effort to stop crying and be strong. If she was going to make it, she would need some positive energy from me. It made sense to me at that time. Trust me. I started singing to her softly. The physician's advice to talk to her was all I could do at this point, so I did. I couldn't stop. I stood there for an hour, and then one of the nurses brought me a chair and some pillows. I couldn't let go of my baby. I felt like I might lose her if I did. Eventually, I remember my poor wife. She must have been worried sick by now, not having even held her baby at all. So I decided to hurriedly go back to check on her. On my way, I thought of every possible lie. I couldn't let her know the real situation. I knew she wouldn't be able to handle it. When I got back to the theater, I found that she had been moved somewhere else. They told me where she was, and then I asked what she was told about our baby. They said they told her that the baby was in a baby's ward and that she would see her soon. That was perfect. My imagination was much more creative. I probably would have blown it if I told any of the lies that I had been cooking on my way. Anyway, I saw Dolly. She was in a recovery ward, so I told her our baby was okay, but couldn't be brought into where she was yet. This was her first baby. She didn't know the procedure either, so she didn't really question it. She was also a bit drowsy from some of the medication she was on, so it gave me the excuse to let her sleep so I could go back to be with the baby. The constant care and attention the baby was receiving kept my mind at ease. I knew they were doing everything they could to keep her alive. I saw them attending to other babies in the intensive care unit as well. I was highly impressed by everything I saw them do in order to save these babies' lives. And how they made each of the families feel very comfortable. Unfortunately, not every baby made it through. Some of the babies passed away right before my eyes. Some as soon as they were brought in. Others shortly after. I had clarity on one thing while I was at the hospital. It was that if eventually my baby didn't make it, it wouldn't be because of. The lack of medical standards, medical infrastructure, nor professional expertise. It wouldn't be because we didn't do everything we could. It would be that it was just meant to happen that way. I felt that we had done everything we possibly could to increase our chances at success and reduce the possibility of a negative outcome by going to the UK for the birth. I thought about. What could have happened to my wife and baby if the same situation had happened to us in Nigeria? And I was glad, really glad, we decided not to take the risk. But then again, who knows? Maybe they both could have survived it in Nigeria. But if anything had gone wrong, I would never have been able to forgive myself 
for having the option and not taking it. I also thought about the medical students and the nurses that ran all over the place to save my sister Lara and her baby Mina. And as I thought about it, I began to appreciate them a whole lot more. I found new respect for their ability to save both lives against all the odds that were stacked against them. They didn't have one-tenth of the equipment at this UK facility. They were overworked and understaffed. Yet somehow, they managed to do what they do. They are true heroes. The helpless feeling we had at Lagos Island Maternity Hospital in Nigeria was non-existent here. I never for once imagined that enough wasn't being done to save the life of my baby. And I think that's the important thing here. Why have your baby in another country? What's the big deal? Why waste all that money? My answer is simple. So that I can be absolutely sure that I did everything I could. So, if you live in a developed country and you've ever questioned why foreign nationals want to come and have their babies in your country, I hope these stories shed some light and give some perspective. The health and well-being of my wife and child is just as important to me as yours is to you. So if it means coming to your country, paying that extra to get some additional guarantee of their safety, that's exactly what I'll do. It's the responsible thing to do. Nobody chooses what country they're born into or of what nationality they belong. So when medical tourism options become available for people in underdeveloped countries, I hope you can understand why they consider it. Sometimes it's a matter of life or death. Now, to be clear, I'm not in support of people who go to other countries and attempt to game the system by not paying medical bills or using resources that are meant strictly for citizens of that country. But I support legal medical and birth tourism, especially if one is faced with little to no options. We spent a total of 11 days in intensive care before she was discharged. Dolly eventually saw her on the third day. I had the nurses wheel Dolly in on a wheelchair to see our baby briefly. Each time Dolly would come to see her, they took off all the connections, wrapped the baby up in a blanket so she could only see her face. They'd placed the baby in her arms for a few minutes and took her back quickly enough to reconnect her to all the monitoring equipment as they wheeled Dolly out of the room and without her noticing. Dolly had no idea that we almost lost her. I told her the full story days after we got home. My baby is seven years old today. She did the intro to this episode. Her name is Timmy. If you follow me on Instagram, you probably already know her. Very smart, very active, very intelligent. Just like her daddy. Thank you for listening to this episode of Nigerian American. Please subscribe and feel free to share this podcast. You can also reach us by our email at NigerianAmericanPodcast at gmail.com.
So, thank you for letting me record my podcast and not making any noise. You're welcome. You're welcome. Okay, so what do you want to say to everyone who's listening right now? Thank you so much for listening. See you next time.